0: Good morning, church. Today's reading will be from Revelations chapter 13, verses 11 through 18, starting in verse 11. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs, it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast. It deceived the inhabitants of earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lives. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the f- first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads, so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast of the number of its name. This call for wisdom, let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, that number is 666.
1: So let me tell you the tale of three websites. One is uh, called Babylon Bee. Babylon Bee came along a few years ago and was a a website devoted to Christian satire, which I think is probably an underappreciated concept in today's world. But they would do news articles every day with, uh, it's kind of playing off, I guess it was The Onion was one that did a similar thing from a non-Christian perspective. But they're just doing articles on, on politics and culture and entertainment, but also within the church culture. And it's, they're, they're, it's satire. They're all spoofing um, the things that are going on, making fun of them. Uh, there's another website that's been around for much longer called Snopes. Snopes has kind of made its mark by being a fact checking website. So if you hear some outlandish claim, from anybody, from the news media, from a politician. You go to Snopes and they've documented, well, how true is this? What are the real facts behind it? So they're trying to expose the truth behind the misinformation that seems to be our our trade in a lot of today's culture. The funny thing is that there's been a number of times where Snopes has posted articles fact-checking the Babylon Bee. And it's really kind of, I think it, it is, I can think of no greater example than the, the, just the nature of kind of the, the downfall of the American public discourse that people can't even see satire as satire. They can't even get the joke that, you know, that somebody does an article like spoofing something and then Snopes comes along. It's kind of like the, the you know, this, this, this guy without the sense of humor to say, well, actually, here are the facts. Um, but they, they, there's been a number of times, and Babylon B has come back and just you know they say, guys, this is what we do. This is satire. We're we're joking, and of course the purpose of satire is is you know you're you're taking exaggerating the truth or mocking it as a way to get people to think. But in the extremism of our time and modern tribalism and all the the way that we communicate or fail to communicate in our culture, there's like this loss of a sense of reality when we can no longer see the joke being a joke. Well, there's satire. There's parody, a lot of similar kind of thing. And in parody, you're doing a similar kind of thing. You're, You're exaggerating or you're telling something that's not quite the truth, but you're doing it to make us laugh. And then there's simply imitation. Uh, where you are mimicking the real thing uh, in order to gain interest. Maybe you, you know, you're going to mimic or imitate somebody's product because you want to get some of the people that like that product to buy yours. Um, I, I've, at times I've described Revelation, these last few chapters, as a kind of parody. I think more accurately, I think we need to really sharpen it and think of it as imitation. That what we're exploring here in Revelation 13 and on through these chapters around here is really we're seeing the work of the enemy work of the work of satan and 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 there are probably i think fewer times in scripture where it is more clear that the business of satan is the business of imitation and it's not an imitation to just to be friendly it's an imitation with the intent to destroy that is satan's business and if that what's he what he is about if satan is the deceiver seeking to get us to see something that looks almost like the real thing But to draw us to it, to destroy us, I think it's imperative that we spot, learn to spot the real thing. Can we spot the genuine thing laying alongside all of the deceptions and the false options that are out there before us? And so we we start in Revelation 13, verse 11. If you don't have your Bibles open, I encourage you to open there. I know we've got several visitors today, and and I I can't imagine joining a study of Revelation in the middle of chapter 13. But let me try to get you on the point of where we're at. What is Revelation essentially about? And this is, I think, helpful as a review for all of us. Revelation is about John, the, the apostle, writing to seven churches in Asia Minor who are in some, you know, dating is different. I, I'm dating this somewhere in the mid-60s, early 60s AD, that he is writing to a series of seven churches that are dealing with real and vital issues related to the actual experience of persecution, and the threat of upcoming persecution. They are responding to the world they live in really in very different ways. Some responding very well, some responding very poorly, some experiencing wealth and being destroyed by it, some experiencing poverty and persecution and being destroyed by it, some enduring in all of this, both the blessings and the curses that they're dealing with. But these seven churches, he is trying to get them to remember who they are and to be ready for what is to come. And so a lot of Revelation is a story uh, told in apocalyptic imagery, but it is a story telling them where they've been, uh, what God has been up to, what God is doing right now in in their present moment, and what God is going to be doing in the years ahead. And so it's that past, present, future that really helps explain a lot of what's been going on. Right here... Revelation 12 and 13, we are really setting the stage for the big battle of what is to come. And what he's been doing is introducing the characters that we're going to get to know. And so he's introduced the lamb, and he's introduced the woman as a picture of the people of God, uh, the lamb being Jesus, and now we've been introduced to the enemies, the bad guys. We were introduced first to the dragon, and then the dragon called forth after he couldn't get what he wanted, and destroying the church, and destroying the lamb, it all proved not. Now the dragon is calling forth these two beasts, and there, last week, we were introduced to what I, I think this week I'll kind of emphasize is kind of the sea beast, this beast, this creature that emerges from the sea and seeks to bring destruction by engaging people in worship. He wants people to worship him. So there's the dragon, the sea beast, and this week we get introduced to the land beast. We're filling out the great cast of characters that, that this battle is that's getting ready to come but as I mentioned last week, when you, when you hear the description of the sea beast in the first verses of chapter 13, there are a lot of echoes of the Trinity. It sounds a lot like Jesus. This is, uh, he, he is mimicking Jesus and who he is. He is in the image of the dragon. He is the dragon's image bearer. He commands worship. And in fact, verse 3, the, the sea beast was one who had a mortal wound and seemed to die, but then was miraculously healed. So he's parading as a kind of resurrected Savior. That's the false son. And here, as we open up verse 11, we see, completing that picture of the Trinity, we see this land beast really looking like the Spirit of God. What does he do? How does he describe? We have the, this beast rising out of the earth, had two horns like a lamb. It speaks like a dragon. There's not a lot of images here to describe physically what he looks like. I, I'm always amused at the way that we can draw these images. But to have a little two-horned lamb with the mouth of a dragon, that image I saw kind of made me laugh. But um, it's, it's bizarre imagery. But he is lamb-like, so parading in a bit like Jesus. Speaks like a dragon, so he speaks with the word of his false father. But he exercises, verse 12, all the authority of the first beast in its present and makes the earth and its habits worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. So the work of the land beast is to draw attention to the sea beast. The work of the land beast is to point beyond himself to the sea beast He is lamb-like as the sea beast is, but he also has the voice of the dragon. He has the authority of the sea beast, verse 12. So all of this is a picture of the land beast as this kind of third person of a false trinity. He's doing a lot of what the Spirit of God does. The Holy Spirit The reason why when you study the Trinity, the Holy Spirit is the hardest person in the Trinity to try to understand and to read about. Because the main work of the Holy Spirit is to point beyond Himself. Because the point of the Holy Spirit is to draw us to Jesus. To make us look to Jesus. To convict us of our need for Jesus. Everything about the Holy Spirit is pointing beyond Himself to Jesus. And so that is what you see echoed here in this land beast. And what he does is leads worship. He is both, I would argue, a false worship leader and a false prophet. And that's what happens, it kind of unfolds. It says it explicitly in verse 12. He's leading his inhabitants to worship the first beast. He performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of the people. And by the signs that's allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth telling them to make an image of the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Now, a couple things. First off, I want you to see already twice there has been this echo of the sea beast. Who is the sea beast? He's described several times as the one who was wounded and yet lived, or the one who seemed to die by, die by the sword and yet, uh, yet survived. So there's this echo, this kind of almost kind of creed or confession Who does he want them to always think about the the sea beast is in Christ-like terms, in this one who is worthy of worship. That's the deception that he's doing or unfolding there. But in this description, it's almost like you see this in just a few verses, almost a survey of some of the great uh, leaders of the Old Testament. Because when it says that he's performing signs, even making fire come down. Well, the fire coming down, that sounds a lot like Elijah, because that's exactly what Elijah did. Elijah was, was this prophet leading people, performing signs and wonders. But Elijah wasn't just Elijah. Elijah really was an echo of Moses. What was Moses doing? But called by God to perform signs and wonders before the world, both to convict Egypt of their need to free Israel and let his people go, but also really to convict them of who the true God is. The plagues that unfolded in Egypt that that Moses led was really a a full-on assault on the false gods of Egypt. Moses was both worship leader, what is he doing, but leading the people out of Egypt so that he can take them to the mountain to, to worship, so they can worship. That's what he tells Pharaoh. This is what I'm about. My people need to worship. They can't worship here. We've got to go to the mountain. He is a worship leader, Moses is a worship leader and a prophet speaking about who God is, performing signs and wonders, and all of that is echoed here in this false third person of the Trinity, the land beast, who's doing the same kind of thing. And his work, all of the purpose of that, verse 14, is to deceive those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet live. Now he 's no longer Moses or Elijah, but he 's an Aaron. Aaron, the first high priest. What was Aaron doing as Moses' brother? His great failure. Moses is on the mountaintop receiving the word of God, and Aaron is convinced by the people to build an idol for them to worship. So here he is, this kind of Aaron-like figure, leading the people, telling them, build the image, build the image. Aaron, in his story, seems more passive. Here, this land beast is more active, leading the people astray, leading the people away from God. It's a fundamental work of deception that is leading the people to idolatry so that the people, the earth dwellers, become image makers. And in fact, that deception goes so far that he, verse 15, he's allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who, couldn't, who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Now, what's that? Well, that's actually referring to a practice that was known at the time. I mean, it happened at the time, which is that people would build these idols, and actually some people would um, use, you know, manipulate the idols to make them appear as if they would speak, ventriloquism. Now it's a form of entertainment. Then it was really a form of sorcery that people would use ventriloquism to project their voice and make it seem. And actually there were examples in the ancient world of of folks actually manipulating the mouths and getting these mouths like having a pulley system so that the mouths would move. So the idols would appear to talk. That's what he's doing here. And that that was a known quantity there in the, especially Asia in the first century. There was an interesting little uh, story here in the first century. The emperor, the Roman emperors, we talked last week, they, there was this kind of growing sense over the centuries of them claiming to be gods. Most of the time in the Roman culture, they wouldn't claim that they were gods until after they had died. It's a little ironic, but that's the way they did it. Um, but then in Asia, there is actually quite a, an extreme effort on the part of a particular group to lead the charge in having active emperor worship while they're still alive treating the emperor as God. And so in these churches in Asia Minor, they're hearing regularly the idea of having community leaders that are really trying to encourage the false notion that the emperor is God. I think that's really hovering in the background of what's going on here. But they're giving breath to these images, making the images come to life, deceiving them. And in fact, it ultimately leads them into a kind of purge to those who don't join in the worship. Now this makes us maybe think of the early chapters of Daniel and you know, the King Nebuchadnezzar you know, commanding everybody to worship and throwing into the fiery furnace those that won't. But really it's also a picture of Joshua. And that's why I say this is just a survey of great leaders of the Old Testament. What does Joshua do? Joshua is commanded by God. When Moses dies, Joshua takes over. They go into the promised land. His job is to, is to destroy the idol-worshipping, child-sacrificing nations that had been in the land of Canaan. The, the coming of Israel was a kind of purge of the evil and the sin of that land. Here, it's a kind of false purge that's happening, that this, this land beast is commanded here to lead those, to destroy those who are not joining in the worship of these false gods. He's a Joshua-like figure leading them to kill the true believers. He is their agent, the, the leader in the, the cause of persecuting the church in the first century. That's the echoes here that's happening in the, the land beast. Well, what is going on? What's this largely a picture of? Well, one thing I, I've tried to show throughout is that a, a big piece of the dynamic here in these chapters is the tension between Jew and Gentile, and for the church— A lot of the story, especially in Asia Minor at the time, is they're really caught between two worlds that are pressing on them. You have uh, Rome, the power of Rome, and its demand for allegiance presses on them day in and day out. But you also have the Jewish synagogue, which even in Asia Minor is incredibly powerful, well-established, and in some of these towns has a tight relationship with Rome. But in Jerusalem, that relationship is also changing. So they have this complicated relationship, and what it is picturing here is a picture of Jerusalem and its leadership turning its heart to Rome. Land versus sea in Revelation is often a reference to Gentile versus uh, Gentile being the sea and Jew being the land. And that's a common theme you see really throughout scripture. That that the that here the sea beast is a gentile beast, the land beast is a Jewish beast, that our thoughts are now on Jerusalem and its leadership. And what it's depicting here, this sea beast, uh, the land beast rises, is a picture of Jewish leadership rising up and partnering, giving a claim to Rome. And historically that happened a number of times. And so if you try to identify a particular person, Uh, You have a lot of candidates. Herod would be probably a a dominant one. Herod had rebuilt the temple. So that seems like, well, we're doing Jewish practices. We're rebuilding the temple. We're going to have Jewish worship. But Herod's heart was in Rome, and he was leading the people to Rome. He was leading the people to give allegiance. And there are a number of other leaders. So it, it looks at times like a Gentile presence because that whole picture of the the beasts are the images moving their mouths. That sounds like one of these Asian councils at the time that would lead emperor worship. But what I think is happening here is that image is being applied to a, really a picture of Herod and Herod's temple and ultimately to the Jewish leadership. It is a tragic picture of the decline of, the, of Jerusalem that ultimately the Jewish leadership, when faced and confronted with the reality that they must either choose Messiah or emperor, that they're choosing emperor. And that leads to two really famous images that follow in the rest of this section. The sea beast has led this people in this kind of false worship. He's a deceiver. You see the power of the land beast, to leading people to the de- sea beast. But then verse 16, a couple things. Well, one, it also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. So there's this picture of the mark of the beast. Two of the most famous images in Revelation are right here, the mark of the beast and the number of the beast. So what is the mark of the beast? Well, you could have lots of wild speculation. And if you want to just kind of let your mind wander and go search the Internet, you'll find anything you want anything can be the mark of the beast especially if they don't like who they're voting for right or who the options are they're going to vote for i even you know you've got the new mark of the beast is now if you've got an apple phone or a google phone you got a little COVID tracker on there i found it this week and so it's there so somebody's already made the claim this is the mark of the beast we're being marked um i think the key to revelation is you stay in scripture and let scripture ground you and keep you from wild speculation what is the mark of the beast here when we hear that they're being marked on the right hand or the forehead, that's happened before. And that happened back in Deuteronomy 6, that God calls the people to mark their hands and to mark their foreheads with the Word of God. It was, and, of course, what evolved from that was in Orthodox Judaism, even today, is the practice of the phylacteries. They have little things they wear on their foreheads, and some are wearing marks on their hand. But it is a picture of being marked by the Word of God. Again, what do this beast do? What is the dragon and the sea beast and the land beast? What are they doing over and over again? They are mimicking the work of God. And they're doing it again here. It's a Deuteronomy-like moment where the phylacteries that are supposed to be mark of allegiance to Yahweh, that are supposed to be the mark of carrying the Word of God wherever they go, they're now a mark of something false. They are building a kind of false church. And you notice, who is this false church composed of? Verse 16, it's everyone both, it all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave. It's this all-encompassing body of people from all walks of life Who are gathered in false worship. Now, we've seen that kind of all language throughout Revelation referring to the church. What is the church but the people from every tribe and every nation and every tongue and every people group? That we have the sense of the unity of God's people is this multi ethnic community composed from all people from all walks of life. That's the vision of the church. The dragon, or the beast, is parading in that kind of imagery as he seeks to build this false church from people both small and great, rich and poor, and free and slave. And now they're being marked by something that identifies that their loyalty is not to God, but their loyalty is to the emperor. Now, what is, what is that? Notice that it's not simply that they're being marked, but in being marked, now He's going to create pressure for them to conform, verse 17, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. So now wearing this mark is this access to power. It's a mark of worship that brings economic gain. Well, what is, what's going to happen if, um, if your worship practices gets you status or claim? power, money, how true is the worship going to be? Well, that's the problem, right? If, 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 my, if I need to show up at a particular church in order to get the acclaim or get the job or get the approval, well, I've got a lot of other motivations I can have for showing up for worship. And that's what they're doing. They're applying this economic pressure. If you want to be in, if you want to have purchasing power, if you want to buy food, if you want to buy whatever, you're going to have to show up and display the mark you're going to have to identify yourself with this false god so the pressure is on them and for the people the churches in Asia minor they're hearing this as the persecutions coming you're going to have to count your costs and you're going to have to be ready now what's going on there what is the mark of the beast and I, again you can't know for sure so I, but I want to ground it in scripture and just suggest i think one of the most interesting propositions is that the mark of the beast is the phylacteries of Deuteronomy 6. That's what, what has happened at the time here in the, the say, the mid-60s in, in, in Asia Minor and in Jerusalem, is that, in, especially in the power of Jerusalem, these phylacteries have become a mark of identifying with the Jewish powers who are so aligned with Rome in their sense of worship that they're aligning themselves against God's people. Now, it's an awkward alliance because there's actually a war coming between Jew and Rome, and the Christians are going to be caught in the middle of it. But clearly, the alliance in the early 60s is that whether it's Jew or whether it's emperor, it's not Christian, and we're both against you. So there's this interesting thing that, that was once a symbol of being marked as the person of God is now a symbol of being marked as against the people of God. That may be what's going on in the mark of the beast, but clearly it's associated with that Deuteronomy 6 passage. Then you've got another. gets lots of speculation. Verse 18, this calls for wisdom. And maybe that's the piece that we should underline in all of this. We just need wisdom here as we seek to interpret and understand. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. What in the world is 666? Well, three different things. That are, that are going on around this. First off, it clearly has some kind of symbolic meaning. And if you just want to rest in the most basic kind of broad understanding, well, 666 is a corruption of 777, um, which is the, which would be a perfect number. I mean, the, the 3 and 7 would be divine kind of numbers. So 666 is a kind of perfect imperfection. It is a straight corruption. The number of the beast shows a, a, a corruption that is simply bent against God at every turn. There's also a practice called gematria, which is to say that at the time they would actually assign that every um, every letter in I know in Hebrew and other languages as well would be assigned a number, and so you could actually have a kind of code where you could every, a, a person's name would have a number assigned to them. In fact, some have argued that Jesus, uh, in Hebrew, that the number for Jesus is 888. So there's like 666-777-888. And, and it was kind of a way of passing on, you know, hidden language. In fact, there was a famous, um, I think in, uh, well, I can't remember which town it was founded, but there was a real famous like graffiti on the wall. Like, I love the woman whose, na- whose number is 569 or something like that. And it was the code for her name, whoever it was. So that practice was was widespread at the time, and so a lot of folks have said well, will see the number six 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 is one of those things. So what is that number? By far, widely, the number that is referred to. People think it's a re- reference to Nero, um, and boy, that would make my job a lot easier because if it's a number that's a reference to Nero, Nero was the emperor in the early sixties. It kind of fits my understanding of trying to see this rooted in something that's happening pre eighty seventy, which is the destruction of the temple by Rome. Uh, that's I would say if you go read scholarship on this, by far, you're going to see Nero as the most common suggestion. Who is the beast? The beast is Nero. Well, there's a problem. A couple, really. One is that the, the numbers really require a little bit of kind of math judo because it would require that you're talking about the number to emerge from a hebrew transliteration of a greek translation of a latin name with at least at minimum a spelling variant and some would argue it's just a flat out misspelling that doesn't work very well and the real problem for me is that that nobody in the early church made that connection in fact irenaeus in the 2nd century wrote a lot about wrote about revelation and made no connection that this is about nero um, so, the suggestion of Nero is a much later, many years later. Uh, so, that's possible, but we just don't know. But it, 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 it was a number, clearly, if you read about it, it's a number for a particular person. That's uh, what he says. And then it has that number. It seems to be that John is sharing a number that they would have known. That He's saying that and they're like, oh yeah, that's who he's talking about. It's kind of a little hidden code. He's in exile and all this kind of stuff. He doesn't want people to know. He's naming names but it 's a name that was largely lost to us, and I think that's that we can kind of stay in that place if you 're going to say this is a reference to a particular person. I think that that would um, that makes a lot of sense because the early church, late first century, early second century, nobody was naming names when they when they had that number of the beasts in six six six. The third thing though, and again, when I look at revelation, I think it 's always worth. You, you use, use Scripture to guide your interpretation of Scripture. I think that's useful for all scriptural interpretation. Scripture is its own best interpreter. There is one reference to 666, uh, the number 666 in Scripture beyond this one, and that is 1 Kings 10.14. And what that is is the annual weight in gold that Solomon received. I think I didn't, I'd never found this until I was doing the study here this year. I think it's a really insightful moment. Now, what is it about Solomon as king getting 666-whatever of gold each year? Why does that matter? Well, in Deuteronomy 17, Moses is warning Israel, you don't want a king. and You're going to have one. You're going to ignore me. You're going to have a king anyway, and it's going to be terrible and, because the king is going to violate three things. There's three things that kings in Israel are not supposed to do. That is to collect gold, to collect chariots, and to collect wives. Like that's, that's where they're gonna go wrong. What's gonna mislead the leaders, it's gonna be when they really like their money, when they really like the fact that they can have any woman they want, and when they really like the chariots or military power. They like the power. That's what goes wrong with the kings. Frankly, that's what goes wrong with most leadership even today. But 1 Kings ten fourteen is the moment where Solomon is collecting gold and collecting chariots and collecting wives And in the next chapter, he abandons God. And what happens in that moment is that Solomon is setting in motion the destruction of Israel because he is setting a pattern for the failure of Jewish leadership that will echo among his sons and among the kings that will follow until you have the destruction of Israel, the exile of the northern kingdom, the exile of Judah, all that unfolds, it starts with Solomon taking 666, whatever, I can't remember the weight, of gold each year, collecting his chariots, collecting his wives, and then abandoning God. I think that's a real key link that helps us understand what is this number all about. This number, 666, shows the decline of leadership in Israel and how they lost their identity as God's people. That what is happening in the first century among Herod and his descendants, among the spiritual leaders of Jerusalem, is that they're doing exactly what Solomon did in aligning themselves with money and power against God and his purposes through Jesus Christ. That's what's going on there then. So what do we do with that now? Let me suggest two things. First, we need to be clear-eyed about the seductive power of the state. All throughout this year, as we've dealt with this pandemic and how the church should respond to the government, and, you know, churches are in different places about whether we should have civil disobedience, should we obey the rules, should we not obey the rules, and even the same church is coming in different places at different times. I say, well, Church in California made itself pretty famous in the last couple weeks. They said at one point they said we're going to follow. They shut down their church for a while, then they started meeting. New rules came. We're not going to follow those rules. Now they're going to court. The court has actually backed them now. Who knows what it'll be in two weeks? But there there's a sense that there that there's a lot of scripture, Romans is a good place to start, that call us to honor the government, to pray for our leaders, and we should. But there's another voice in scripture that we've got to balance, which is that the state And leaders vie for our hearts, and the basic tendency of leaders is to seek to replace God as objects of worship. Read the early chapters of Daniel, and you'll see that pattern again and again. Even folks that initially say, I like your God, I want to follow Him, the next chapter, they're going to say, now you're going to worship me again. There's this seductive power of power, the state of government that guides us, that's a piece of what we see and what's going on here and all the challenges of understanding Revelation 13. Clearly, this is about government powers. This is about Jerusalem versus Rome. The religious leaders here are joining in the seduction of political leaders vying for our worship. All of it is functioning through deception. The people are misled by things and by people which appear attractive. We've got to be clear-eyed about that. So that's a piece of how we struggle. The second thing, we realize that if they're vying for our worship, that worship is identity, and identity is worship. Revelation 13 is a war song for our identity. And a lot of times, you know, we a lot the, the language of identity politics is front and center, and there's so much language and conversation in our culture today about identity. And why is it that Think about debates about gender or sexuality. Why is it that the church keeps winding up on the opposite side, kind of against so much of the world and this question of identity? Because the church, if we understand the gospel well, if we understand Scripture, we understand that our core allegiance is at stake. That when somebody is vying for our identity, whether that identity is found in you know, sexual preference or in gender or race or politics or partisanship, your party or attaching yourself to something, that, that our core allegiance is at stake. And, and when we're talking about worship, there is no middle ground allowed. Here in Revelation 13, you are either for the lamb or you are for the false lamb. There is no middle ground. There is not a silent majority that can go back and forth. There is what's happening here in Revelation 13 is a clear marker, and you've got to declare your allegiance. Are you with the Lamb? Or are you with the False Lamb? Are you going to join Messiah? Or are you going to join the sea, the Land Beast and giving a claim to the Sea Beast, following the way of the Dragon? There is no middle ground. And here in a season where you know it's not like we haven't been elevated all year, but we're getting ready, the conventions are coming, politics, the election season is going to be going full force. It really feeds a time where we can find ourselves wanting to align ourselves with those powers that be who really are ultimately seeking something that is not for our good. And and as the church and as the people of God, we've got to have a clear sense of our purpose and our identity that none of us individually... And none of us collectively as a church become the mouthpieces of a politician, of a party, of a platform, or some protest. We've got to be clear eyed that our allegiance is to God and God alone, God above all. And in that, there is an actual opportunity to rise above the tribalism of our day. And I think that's where, that's so much of our cultural conversation is just born out of this kind of tribalism that we're we're captured in. But we can rise above it if we have a clear sense of our priority. We are the people of God. We are called to be the people of God in this world. And no party, politician, platform, or protest can capture our hearts. We will stand with people when they fight for good, And we can stand against those same people when they fight for evil. And our line between good and evil comes as we understand who God is and what Jesus is doing in this world. So I said at the beginning there are these tale of three websites. The third one, along with the Babylon Bee and uh, Snopes, is Fake Spot. I really have come to appreciate Fake Spot. Every now and then I'll be trying to get something on Amazon and there's some product that pops up and it looks like it's exactly what I need and I've got the price right. And then I go to FakeSpot, and I kind of dial in what they do. What FakeSpot does is it analyzes all of the reviews on those products, and it figures out which one are the reviews are created by bots or created by the company. to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go make 100 accounts and make 100 great reviews on this thing so I can pop up my visibility. It wants us to understand that all, that we, all the glitters is not gold, that what we see before us may not be true, Fake spot is trying to help us see the imitation so that we can go after the real thing. And I think that's what's before us in Revelation 13. That's what's before us every day as worshipers, that our calling is to reject the imitation and to worship the real thing. And that comes as we embrace our identity as the people of God. We find our identity in our worship of the real triune God. Let me pray for us. God, I pray for each of us that you will give us eyes to see that which is real and that which is fake, that which will lead us to worship you, that which will lead us to worship something else. Give us eyes to see and hearts that long to run away from that which deceives and run towards that which brings life. In Christ's name, amen.